Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, well, it's our last episode of the year. We're going on a two-week hiatus, so don't freak out. I'm talking with Lee Lord, the head brewer of the reborn New England classic, Narragansett. Lee runs the R&D brewery that brought Narragansett back to Rhode Island, and in this wildly digressive conversation, we touch on how she brought back a retooled Gansett classic that throws back further than the brewery's 130-year history. Sit back, grab a porter, and say, hi, neighbor. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of Beer for Boobs, Soldiers Angels Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. And let's give back together. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. if you've ever been here, but my brew house is literally in the tap room. They put me on a stage to, to be watched <laughs> while I brew. So it's a very like on display job, which I've never had uh, in the industry before. You know, you always see the brew house kind of tucked away behind the scenes, which I prefer, but no, not here. <laughs> I'm trying to remember Cambridge. Yeah. Cause of course I know that place pretty well. The brew deck was what, right behind the bar, wasn't it? But it's yeah, that's hidden. in the middle of the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that was my that was my first exposure to uh, brew pubs. Really, it was one of mine as well, and that actually like Cambridge Brewing. I got dragged there in 2007 on a double date, and I really wasn't into beer at all. But I was trying to impress my date, so I tried the barley wine, uh, and then my life was changed forever. So, given the amount of association I've seen between you and barley wine as life uh, as a tag, yeah, that that all started with blunderbuss. <laughs> Let's dive right into it. First, why don't you tell everybody who you are now they've heard your voice. Nice. My name is Lee Lord. I'm the head brewer here at Narragansett Providence. Uh, We've been open just going on. It'll be two years in April. Uh, And when Mark, our CEO, bought the company 17 years ago, 
his mission was always to bring Narragansett back to the ocean state. Uh, we had been a brick and mortar brewery here founded in 1890. Uh, in the 70s, that brewery closed its doors and we started contracting up at Genesee in Rochester, New York. Um, and that's still where our lager and our shandies are made. But we opened up a 20 barrel research and development craft facility here in Providence. Uh, so for Mark, this is a total dream come true. And for me to run his brewing operation, it's it's been incredible. You know, we have 12 taps here, 13 fermenters. So I get a lot of flexibility with styles. Um, and it's just, it's been phenomenal. Um, before I was with Gansett, I come from Cambridge Brewing Company outside of Boston uh, and Smutty Nose up in New Hampshire. Yeah, the first thing I wanted to say was, when you guys announced the relaunch of like reopening in, in Providence, the first thing I had thought of was my grandfather, who was sort of a crusty old New Englander, and him being happy that the beer would be back, but then being completely confused by everything else that you were brewing. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty confusing. And part of our licensing denotes that we can't serve beer that's not brewed on premise. So you come to the Ganset Brewery and you can't get a Ganset Lager. I actually have never even seen that recipe. It's proprietary for... Genesee now, who contracts for us. So, you know, we have tons of old world style lagers, uh, like Bohemian Pilsner. We have a Zwickel beer. We do Bach. We do Fest. Um, I'm actually, I'm brewing a new one, an Argentinian lager next week. Uh, but you can't get Gansett lager here. We're trying to appeal more to the craft beer drinker. So there's a lot of new hop technology for our IPAs, double IPAs. They let me brew gruets of all things. There's a Gansett Norwegian Viking gruet that's on tap right now for the holidays. So I'm really, as a more experimental brewer, I'm really able to stretch my wings. But yeah, the customer base doesn't always wrap their head around Gansett <laughs> as this kind of brewery. It is a little confusing, but I mean, hey, it, it works. Yeah. <laughs> and it's good to see that the brewery is back in, in Rhode Island. Let's actually step back for a moment and talk a little bit more about you and your, your history. Because you said, okay, 2007, you get dragged to Cambridge Brewing Company, not so much into beer. Was it just Blunderbuss that got you into beer and then into brewing? And Pretty much. You know, I've been to college parties and I think Magic Hat Number 9 and Stella were my go-tos. Like, if I'm drinking anything, I want the one that tastes like apricots because... Beer flavored beer, you know, I, I always thought of like my dad's beer and taking a sip and being like, ah, oh, this, this is gross. I think Bjork has a quote like, beer tastes like wood. <laughs> and it's like, oh, uh, yeah, I kind of got that. So it wasn't until I explored some of the heavier beers and the complexity there, like barley wine, it's nutty, it's toffee like, there's raisin notes and date notes. You know, there's so much more going on than just taking a swig of Budweiser off a keg at a college party or, you know, stealing one of my dad's Sam Adams Boston lagers, which, you know, at, at that time I wasn't drinking to taste it anyway. But <laughs> that's really when 
my mind and my eyes got opened up to like, wow, there's a lot going on here, a lot more than I ever thought. That's been one of those things I've argued about for years is you always had breweries have like a blonde ale or wheat ale or something pale that they would serve to the people who are like, I don't like beer or, you know, what's the thing you have that's most like Budweiser. And my argument has always been that's the wrong approach. Wow people with flavor, show them a possibility. Right. And that sounds like exactly what hit you square between the eyes. You you started homebrewing, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I started homebrewing. This was right around 2010 or so. Um, yeah, I started homebrewing with a bunch of my friends. We all went in together on our brew magic little five-gallon homebrew system, and we'd pull up in the garage and brew every weekend, um, you know, for each other's weddings and what have you. Um, so that's really, yeah. Yeah, that's really when it all started. And then beer festivals. When I Once I started going to beer festivals, I was hooked. <laughs> See, I'm trying to think. The first two batches I brewed, I brewed in college. And I brewed with a bunch of friends because, of course, that's what one does when you have no money. And I bought all my supplies over there at Modern Homebrew out there. And was that that's in Davis Square or is that Porter Square? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or it's in between the squares. Who knows? Right. <laughs> the Camberville area. There you go. <laughs> it's good to see that we both got our homebrewing started in the in the same part of the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you were doing CBC for a good long while, Smutty Nose. Now in Narragansett, you you've got you said what is twenty barrels? Yep, we have a twenty barrel brew house uh, and thirteen. We have uh, let's see, ten thirty barrel fermenters, three twenty barrels, a forty barrel lagering tank, and a twenty barrel lagering tank. You know, that's a pretty sizable pilot system. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's like, where, where's the, the pilot pilot system? It's like, you're looking at it, man. We just go for it. <laughs> you're looking at the pilot system. I'm the pilot yeah. system. <laughs> so I, I have to ask, have you ever made one of those pilot batches that you kind of just stopped and went, hmm, got to tweak that one? Oh, all the time. All the time. I mean, I think if you ask most brewers, uh, we'll find things that we immediately want to tweak about our recipes. There's only been a couple where I take a sip, I sit down, I close my eyes and I'm like, I wouldn't change a thing. It's perfect. You know, we oftentimes are our own worst critics. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, but a couple times, like I was tasked with trying to recreate Gansett lager for which I think I mentioned, I've never even seen the recipe. <laughs> so I was like, mm, okay. So we have a batch in tank right now. It's just, a little too hoppy. You know, if you did a blind taste test, you'd be able to tell pretty quick which was Gansett lager and which was not. So that is going on tap as our pre-prohibition lager. <laughs> you just need to make one and eventually call it not your grandfather's Narragansett. That's a really good idea. I'm going to steal that. Free of charge. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because out here, and Denny and I were just literally talking about this. I've noticed that there's a trend for a lot of places trying to make a lager and, you know, making pilsners because everybody went during COVID and said, oh, we have time to lager things properly. Why not? Yeah. But I've noticed the trend here in LA is that everybody who's making it a pilsner brands it as a North German pilsner just so that they can say that's the reason why we have more hops in it. That's funny because here in the East, it's Czech styles. Everybody's doing the Luker faucet. They do a light one and a dark one. Out here, it's all 
all about the Bohemians. <laughs> well, yeah, we were just talking about uh, uh, Brianne Allen's uh, new place up there in Maine, and the yeah. and the dark and and I want to go. I want to go have that beer because yeah. that sounds <laughs> so do I, <laughs> so do I. But the, but out here we also have Notch, who's been around for mm-hmm. over a decade at this point, uh, just pumping out classic, classic, obscure old world lagers. Uh, most of them are session strength. Uh, most of them are decocted, if not once, uh, a few times. Um, yeah, so people people are really grasping onto that right now in the craft sector, I think. And I think it's because, you know, everybody, like the IPA craze hit. Mm-hmm. And then the hazy IPA craze hit. And everybody was like, ah, oh, what's next? What's next? And if, if you ask any brewer what they want next, like oh i want to drink a lager man like even come from me the barley wine girl like i drink barley wine a couple times a year to keep it special uh but most often than not i've got a pilsner in my hand we always used to ask brewers when we'd go to their breweries and say hey you know after your shift is done what are you drinking and i'm fairly certain the most common answer was Coors banquet yeah yeah for me it's miller high life (laughs) yeah sometimes you just need something cold and clean that washes everything down yeah, we're really lucky here. We have a uh, German-American cultural society, a town away, and they've always got uh, Weinstefaner oh, nice. on all their taps. So that's where I go every Friday is I go for my Weinstefan lager. Like, <laughs> I can drink that and know it's perfect and it doesn't taste like working to me. I'm just like, oh, this is the benchmark. Awesome. Well, the trend that I started to see out here, and like, God, I hope it keeps going, is seeing people do ordinary bitters or just bitters in general. I would be very happy if that trend actually accelerated. Me too. Me too. I was lucky enough to go brew in London uh, this past spring, and I drank so much cask bitter and mild that I had a tummy ache for three days. (laughs) That's the best sort of tummy ache. Yeah, the cask tummy ache. (laughs) Like, (laughs) oh, something's still alive in there. Mm, mm. (laughs) I I feel wonderful. Now, one of the things I did want to talk about, and actually the whole thing that inspired this was, I've been seeing lots of posts on beer social media. And of course, if you are beer friendly and beer active and you start following brewers and everything, you start seeing a lot of posts popping up very similar to other ones. And I saw a lot of people posting pictures of the Narragansett Porter, which, do I understand correctly? I mean, that's a an old beer from Narragansett. but Yeah, now- that was one of their first beers. Uh Hang on, let me just pull up my notes. So that was first brewed in 1916. um, And that actually was one of the beers we got a, or Narragansett got a special permit from the government to serve it during prohibition for health benefits. It's a medicine. I think it was especially high in iron, so it was marketed to pregnant women. Yeah, but that's that's the beer that got Narragansett through prohibition. Hey, why not? Yeah. I mean, look, if Guinness can market Guinness is, makes you strong. Why not Porter for medicinal health? Yeah. You're not making the shandy and you're not making the, the lager in house because right. that's out, out of Genesee in, in Rochester. The Porter came from you. The Porter came from me. The Porter came from me. Uh, and that was one of the first beers that we brewed in this facility when we first opened up. And that was going back. I think we released it in the early aughts and we contracted it out of uh, Revival Brewing. Mm-hmm. It's another brewery here in Rhode Island. So that was one of their brewmaster's recipes, that first one that we did. Uh, but the recipe, so that was a 7% porter. Um, I'm not sure what the ABV or the recipe was back in 1916 when they first brewed it. I have a hard time picturing it would be that strong. Yeah, yeah. 
And yeah, but we brewed Sean Larkin's recipe on uh, that first batch that we did, but we've since changed the recipe to something very interesting and super dear to my heart. So we were approached by the Rhode Island Historical Society, who was founded in 1822 and asked to make an anniversary beer for them. So I was like, oh, history and beer, like those, those are my two passions in life. So I went back, I re- researched a bunch of Ron Pattinson, the beer historian's recipes from the 1800s. He's compiled decades and decades of beer recipes from London and from all around England, uh, starting in the 1800s. So I found some from the 1820s and the recipe that is Narragansett Porter now is based off of porters that were being brewed in London uh, in the 1800s. So that's a five and a half percent porter. Nice. You're brewing the porter. You start brewing the porter for the historical society. Yep. Now, when you were looking at those old recipes and sort of, I'm guessing you took like what you saw there and sort of synthesized it into something modern that you could do. Yeah. You know, the way, the way beer was brewed back then, it was all party guiled. So you'd brew three different batch strengths and sort of blend them into whatever kind of beer you were creating. AKA the madness that Fuller still, I think does. Yeah. Yeah. Nuts. (laughs) Right. This was not party guiled. Uh, This was just, you know, I, I had, an approximation of ABV. So I just brewed for, you know, body and, and finishing gravity there. Um, but the the hardest part about making this beer was that I'd never seen ingredients in these percentages in a recipe before, you know, and I was only using malts that had been around at that time. So no black patent, no roasted barley. It was about 30% brown malt, 20% amber malt and then Maris Otter. Maris. You know, but you look you look at modern, like going back to the the porter recipe that had been Narragansett Porter, you know, there's Crystal 60, there's roasted barley, there's all these things to sort of round it out and give it that complexity. But this 1822 batch was just a total trust fall. And just to clarify when you're saying the, the beer that had the the crystal 60 and all that. That was the, the earlier version that you guys the had. The earlier recreated. one. Yep. The 7% one. Kind of a robust porter. Very robust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I know we've talked about malt changes over history and, and different technologies at the time. So, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're starting to, you were, you were basing your recipes right around that time when malt was starting to transition. You start to see black patent come up and you start to see the other dark roaster malts. Black Patton was around in England at the time. It had not made it to the States. So I threw in just a little bit, just, you know, to give a nod to each side of the pond. Just a pinch between the cheek and the gums. Right, right. Okay. Well, and so I, I, I'm like years ago when, when I was a, a nibbling home brewer, I did what, what I understood at the time to be a historical porter, which was like a third amber, a third brown, and a third pale. And it was awful because I hadn't realized that brown malt was radically different. <laughs> so when you were doing this recipe, like what did you have to think about in terms of like those different malt changes? I was really afraid, you know, usually when I use brown, it'll be like 10% and yeah. round it out with like a whole bunch of other things. Um, I was really afraid about how that was going to express. I, I believe we used Simpsons brown in this. Yeah, like I said, it was a total, total trust fall. Uh, but the finished product, I was 
blown away by. It's so chocolatey <laughs> and so nice. It's it's a good medium bodied beer, um, but you can sink more than a pint of it, which is exactly what I was going for. If you're a porter and you're doing thirsty work, you should want to be able to sink more than a pint of it. Right. Right. And again, you're saying chocolatey notes, but again, just what brown, amber, and pale, right? right. Yep. Where, where do you think those uh, chocolate notes come from then? I think they come from the brown. I do. Uh, you know, I just tailored an imperial stout recipe that was pretty similar to the porter, just way, way more of everything. <laughs> um, uh, and it's expressed in the exact same way. I, I really think it's that Simpsons brown, which tends to be a little bit less roasty and sort of acrid than the other brown malts. Uh, it tends to be on the lighter side of brown, uh, which I think is good, but you still get all that color you need. So here we go. We go from a beer of relatively unknown provenance in 1916 with the original porter. I have to imagine at some point in time, it did the yingling thing and just became like a dark lager. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, trends at the time would suggest that for sure. So we go from there. Then with the revival of the brewery, we get sort of an American, uh, an Americanized upgraded version, shall we say, in terms of the, the Yeah, strength. I mean, it was a very early aughts recipe, lots of crystal malt. That I believe we used American hops in that, which for this new batch, it's all East Kent Golding. <laughs> well, uh, thank God no Fuggles, because otherwise Denny would hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Denny is a charter, a charter member of the Fuggles Hater Club. Oh, then we're going to have words, man. I love Fuggles. <laughs> I, I can already channel what he would say to you. He's just like, well, you just like the taste of dirt then. Well, kind of. <laughs> so, and then we go from that sort of oomphified American version to now this more historically, I don't want to say accurate because that's always kind of loaded, but. Oh, it's not accurate at all. I mean, if it was accurate, it would be Brett Bertanomyces positive. <laughs> well, let's see. Now, that would be an interesting spin then is to, you know, like make a batch of it and then just stow some of it away with Brett just to. Yeah. Just to yeah, serve it up and sure. go. For sure. I think, I think Jester King did something very similar to that. That would make sense. That's very yeah. much on brand. <laughs> and then you said all all EKGs in this. Yep. If we were looking at it from a modern hopping perspective, like how how are you hopping this to be more historical or in difference? It's say. very low on bitterness. I think it tops out at twenty three IBU. Okay. Yeah, I think we get about twelve of those IBUs from bittering edition, sixty minute edition, and then the rest are pretty much flame out. Still having a little bit of a modern American technique in there, which is flame out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I, I did tweak this recipe for modern palates. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny because I always tell people that the way to become a better brewer is to brew more often. And I swear part of it's just the muscle memory. You know, knowing, yeah. knowing okay, hey, at this point in time, I got to do this and this. And, and your body just becomes used to the dance. I When I started brewing with Will Myers, who is one of the best brewmasters in the country, in my opinion, um... I was so confounded. It was like, all right, it's time to take first running's gravity. And he's like, nah, don't bother. Like, what? <laughs> he's like, well, the wind's blowing from the south. It's about 30% humidity today. I can tell what it is. He can just like smell the air and be like, no, we're good. <laughs> also, to be fair, I mean, Will's been working on that system in that space for ever and a damn day. True, true. My job with him was a little bit different, though. I was off site, yep. uh, I was the head production brewer. So we had bought the old brew house from Hill Farmstead and put it in the Mystic Brewery in Quincy, Mass, mm -hmm. or Chelsea, Mass. And that's where I was. So I was sort of 
with CDC, but not at the pub. I was right. on this lone island by myself. <laughs> and it's funny because I think then th- those were the bottles that I first started to see pop up out here on the on the West Coast. Yeah, through Shelton Brothers. Yep. Yeah, which, by the way, confused the hell out of me when they first <laughs> appeared because I was like, what the hell is Will doing? How, what, how is that coming out here? It makes no sense. And then I found out about about you doing the operations yep. down there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think though now, like now that that operation, Mystic Brewery, unfortunately closed down. Yep. So our run there ended, and that's when I came over to Gansett. Uh, the timing could not have been better <laughs> for that whole switcheroo. But uh, Will is hand bottling things at the Ten Barrel Pub in Cambridge still. Oh, good lord! That's yeah. that's, yeah. that's way too much work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but of course, Will is the sort of crazy person who would totally be game oh, yeah. for that. <laughs> We've got the, this beer now, this porter. I'm I'm still really amazed. Like, uh, trying to think how best to put this. I'm really amazed at the fact like you, you, you dug back in through those resources and you did do, as you put it, a, a trust fall and it ended up on the other side with, with something that not only worked, but worked wonderfully well. Me too. Uh, when it first went on tap, it was called 1822 Porter, you know, and when Mark brought up, what was it, four months ago now, uh, he was like, hey, we're going to start canning Gansett Porter. Uh, can we use this recipe? Everybody loves it. It was like, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, we can. Nice. So it, that's, I mean, that's amazing to see that cycle happen because, again, you, you took a flyer on something that would... Let's face it, I mean, a lot of collaboration beers or a lot of these sort of project beers like this are one-offs. And right. if they if they go a little squirrely, then they go a little squirrely and life moves on because it's beer. Um, but to see that that happen and now for it to become a canned product. Now, is this going to be a, a regularly canned product or is this still going to be kind of a... a I think like it's going to be a year-round offering. Really? Yep. That's got to yep, be Yep, I've done two batches of it in the last month. That's, uh, that's got to be just exciting to have happen. Oh, I way. love it. I love it. And I got to tell you, brewing a dark beer in the fall in New England is just the best. It's the best. You come in in your sweater and you brew this delicious smelling beer. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, but I, I have to ask, given the recent campaign that you guys just had on social media, is the sweater an ugly sweater? Um, no, not the ones I wear for brewing. Those are too valuable. Like people were offering me hundreds of dollars for last year's. It was like, oh man, I can't give you my Joss sweater. <laughs> right. And for listeners who are not as uh, inclined to be on the internet all the time, you guys were selling the most wonderfully awful holiday, ugly Christmas sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, words fail to describe the level of just awe-inspiring. Oh, they're awful. (laughs) I love them. (laughs) But, you know, and and that is funny because I was also thinking about this morning, like, brewing as a job, you know, not not as somebody who's farting around in his garage like I do, but brewing as a job is always this kind of weird push-pull where most brewers I know prefer to brew early in the morning. You know, like get up, get up, and and do it before the heat gets up, and all that sort of fun stuff. And then, yet, most of the job and like the PR aspects that we were talking about uh, earlier all happen at night because that's when people are drinking beer. So it's like the brewers' lives are constantly shifting between the morning and the evening. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Which works for me. I am not a morning person. <laughs> so I'll come in. I'll usually start brews around eight, which is late by some people's accounts, but. 
Oh, I, yeah. know, so, I know some people would be like, that's half the day gone. Yeah. I know you said uh, the Narragansett Porter is coming ba- is coming as a mainstay. And given that you have the brew pub background and now the, the production brewery with the R&D side as well, you know, one of the things a lot of craft brewers or a lot of craft beer aficionados and craft brewers like to talk a lot about is sort of the IPAization of everything. Yep. And the fact that it seems like style windows are narrowing down and public's taste is narrowing down. I've talked to a number of brewers where they're like, man, I would love to make a dark beer, but if I make a dark beer, it stays on tap for four months. Right. Do you think something like a porter, and particularly something like this one where sort of an old school throwback porter, could ever become like a thing that would be back into that line when, you know, brew pubs first started and it was like everybody had a pale ale and a porter and a wheat beer. Will it ever become just a, a thing that's expected again? I hope so. I hope so. I want to honestly say it doesn't seem likely. You know, I think the IPAization of everything is kind of here to stay for better, for worse. Um, and there's always going to be that sector of the market that trends towards maltier offerings and darker offerings. Uh, but it's never going to, it's never going to outgrow the hop heads. <laughs> well, I think the last, the, the last numbers I saw said something like, 43% of all craft beer sold as an IPA. Yeah. Which is astonishing. Yeah, it makes sense. Like I don't even go to liquor stores anymore because it's you you just get hit with this wall of like bright, prismatic, cartoonish IPA labels, and that's kind of it. And to find everything else, you have to dig. And it's like, oh man. <laughs> and I've been lamenting recently like the sort of dearth of Belgian classics on the shelves anymore. Oh yeah. That's been a huge hit. Like I know Belgian centric breweries other than Allagash because they can do no wrong ever, but like Oma Gang is, is having a little bit of trouble and getting a lot of flack for offering other styles now. And, you know, Mystic in Chelsea, Mass, uh, where I used to brew for Cambridge Brewing Company, that was a Belgian centric brewery and they, they couldn't stick it out. You know, that's probably the biggest falling category in the U.S. beer scene right now. And as somebody who is a a self-confessed Saison addict, makes me very sad. Yeah, same. You had mentioned earlier Shelton Brothers with the, the CBC offerings. I, I think it would be hard to understate how big of a loss that was. That was really sad for the whole community. I mean, luckily, most of the brands that they've covered have found other homes and other importers. But it's harder to find everything. <laughs> yeah, it is. All right. And so just to close things out, because I know we've been yabbering on about Porter and lots of digressive topics, which is fine by me. <laughs> okay. So you took a flyer on this recipe. You made you made this beer. You surprised yourself with how how much this beer came out as like a, a beautiful song. If you were to sit down now knowing what you've done here and were to design a Lee Porter, the most Lee Porter that could be Portered, what would it be? It would be something very close to this. Um, I'm a huge English ale super dork, so it would certainly be a London porter uh, with a Maris base. I would maybe dry this out just a little bit. Um, This one's a little bit chewy on the back, um, so I might lower the body just a little bit because I want like two or three or four pints of this. (laughs) Um, and, And this one's so close, so close, but it's just a little bit too chewy. 
um, and maybe add some roasted, roasted barley to just give it a little bit more backbone to the chocolate. Do you think that chewiness comes from that combination of the amber and the brown? Yeah. Yeah. And the Maris. <laughs> Maris can do no wrong. Right. Although actually the one I've been playing with recently and the podcast listeners are sick of me talking about is the, uh, the Chevalier. Oh, I've been, so BSG has been sold out of that, but I've been dying to try it. It makes Maris look like a 90 pound weakling. No, really? Yeah. Yes. It, oh god it is it is a malt bomb and a pale malt oh my god what style do you use it for i had looked at it for actually this porter um and and bsg told me they couldn't get it in time so i scrapped that and just went with maris but i mean it would be totally appropriate for the porter of course i mean the way bsg is selling it and crisp is selling it as well in a way that makes absolutely perfect sense for what we were just talking about with the market is the original ipa malt Okay. I mean, I get it. That's ex- and, and they're right. And it's exactly how you'd want to sell it if you want to get people to buy it these days. Wow. But I will tell you that I made a mild with it. <gasps> oh. and, and it is it is, it is is the best mi- Yeah, arguably the best mild I've ever made. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. How strong is it? Uh, th- three, four. Okay. Oh, perfect. Huh. <laughs> So, I mean, it, just because it, it sings so much, uh, and it does that, it does that great thing that a great base malt will do, which is it gives you lots of character and then mm-hmm. still manages to get out of the way so that you get down to the back end of the beer and it's like, okay, I'm ready for the next sip. Oh so. God. I can't wait to brew with it now. <laughs> Have you ever used Imperial malt? I haven't. Okay. That was another one I was looking at. And that was another one that I couldn't get from my supplier in time as well. They tout that as a good dark beer base malt. Yeah, but I, I haven't used it. I'll keep you posted when I do, though. Please. All right. Now, isn't this isn't this one of those great things? Even though we're talking about like the you know how much IPAs are dominating, and obviously all the attention that people are paying to hops, but yet now we have so many options now for malt that I it's know. amazing. Yep. <laughs> it's like, ooh, do I use this malt or this malt? It's much better than the old choice of well, I've got two row and right. maybe some six row. Right. And that's kind of, you know, you see that in going through the Gansett recipe records. You know, I got the recipes for Fresh Catch, for Porter, for all of our, you know, kind of one-offs that we contracted out of other places in the early aughts. Mm -hmm. And you see that reflected, like everything's got a two-row base, pretty much every single thing. And it's like, ooh, I have a lot of room to play with this. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's and it's it's great to see you can move the needle now, and you can do it in ways that the yeah people. And you're talking about your 1820s recipe research. I mean, they didn't have the this sort of choice, you know. Right. Was, yeah, but now we now we can do that. Now we have that choice, so it's a new a new flavor palette. Even if we're trying to recreate something older, Lee, I know it's it's a Friday. It's time for you to think about getting your your wife to on her own. Yeah, yeah, it's beer time. <laughs> Any last words that you want to give people about Narragansett, making a porter, or enjoying just life? Uh, I am imploring people to make more porters because I want to drink them. Uh, and so does my fiance. He hates IPAs. So wherever we go, we have to make sure there's a dark beer on for him. So make more porters. I want to drink them. <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, ma'am, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Have a good one. All right. Bye, neighbor. 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this meandering conversation that, nominally, discussed Lee's porters and what makes her porter hers. Now, make sure to stop into the brewery when you're in Providence and witness the magic of a classic old brewery reborn with a modern flair. And don't forget, we are going on holiday break, but we will be back in January with more goodness. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcastexperimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to get your questions in either. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And, of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the Pongo Fund, a food bank for animals in need. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files, and a Happy New Year! Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to 5 gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. 